0: Welcome
1: to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. You're listening to the Library Science Channel. I'm your host, Talal Yadin, and I'm here with Yael A. Sternhell, author of War on Record, The Archive in the Afterlife of the Civil War. Would you mind just introducing yourself, maybe your background a little bit, and War on Record? Yes, thank
0: you, and thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Um, Archivists and librarians have meant so much in the making of this book, and in many ways are my primary audience, or at least one of my primary audiences, so I'm excited. Um, So um, I'm a historian of the long Civil War era, And this book uh, originally um, started as a study, which could never have really happened, of uh, how the Confederate States of America archived its records. Basically the question that I used to be interested in uh, way back when was whether Confederates archiving government records were thinking about uh, the future, about how to control the future public memory of their cause or whether they were just trying to undertake government business. And I I kind of started poking around the National Archives um, with with this question in mind. And then an archivist in the reading room of the National Archives in downtown Washington, D.C., um, Told me that I should look at some other records in a collection that I was interested in, as I was sort of trying to figure out uh, what the War Department archival collections looked like and and what their format had meant. And so um, that's how I discovered an extraordinary uh, treasure uh, in the National Archives, much of which has never been touched, and that is the archive of the archive, meaning. That is the records of the federal agencies that had managed Civil War records from 1865 to 1901. And because these are seemingly dull administrative records, uh, they have barely uh, been touched by historians over the past 100 and, and some years. And we're really just sort of waiting to be discovered. Uh, because as I started going through them, I discovered a fascinating history of the ric- written records documenting the Civil War and assembled by the federal government in its aftermath. Meaning, during the war, these two giant armies fighting in the field were producing a constant flood of paperwork that was the infrastructure of their functioning, right? Orders, commands, letters, memoranda, Um Everything that had to do with supply, with the movement of soldiers, everything was documented. Armies of that size spread uh, across the entire continent um, needed paperwork to function. And at the end of the war, the federal government assembled this paperwork and uh, f- assembled it for two different reasons. Um, federal paperwork was just assembled as a, an, another um Measure of just good military order, right? Um, the adjutant general um, just asked for all papers to be forwarded, and and the clerks started going through them and and sorting them out, and and preparing them uh, to for storage. Confederate papers, however, were assembled by the federal government for completely different reasons. At first, they were supposed to be um, Uh, used for military trials um, and for treason trials, which the federal government and the public um, in the non-Southern states was convinced would be taking place um, soon thereafter. Um, As Eventually, as we all know, these trials never took place, but the the federal government found itself with a huge store of Confederate paperwork which then uh, lay dormant for a few years, but eventually played a huge part in the interaction between the government and ex-Confederates for 40 or 50 years. And so my book basically traces these two bodies of records, the federal and the Confederate, in the hands of the federal government. And it asks fundamentally two questions. First question is, how did the records... Uh, figure in the complicated politics of post-Civil War America. And here the focus of the story really is the Confederate records and the ways in which the government uses them for um, different um, um, forms of account settling uh, with Southerners and then eventually for uh, sectional reconciliation, meaning the story that I tell in this part of the book is a story of records which are first created during wartime as a means of waging war, but eventually becomes become vehicles of sectional peace. Um, and so that's part of the story I'm telling. And then the second part of the story I'm telling is basically how the records left in the hands of the government have shaped historical knowledge as we know it today meaning how were the processes that these documents uh, had, had gone through between 1861 and 1901, uh, how are they uh, at the core of what we know or think we
1: know about the Civil War? And can you also talk a little bit about the way, wi- the book is not the right word, <laughs> the many-volume compendium, in which these records were assembled the war of the rebellion a compilation of the official records of the union and confederate armies which right. will come up right
0: so the second uh half of the book is devoted uh to a huge archival project that the federal government um, undertook starting in 1874 which is the editing and publication of what they called the official records, uh, which seems to denote all of the official records created by the Union and Confederate armies. Um, In reality, that was hardly the case. There was a very uh, aggressive editorial process at work. And the the documents that did make it into publication were uh, organized in 128 volumes. Uh, which which move uh, both geographically and temporally, meaning each volume covers a certain theater of the war at a certain period of time, usually a few months. And that collection, from the moment it came out, has been at the center of historical knowledge about the Civil War. Every single history written of the Civil War And I'm not talking about just the sort of dull old school military histories, historians of emancipation cannot write the history of slavery's collapse without using um, the official records or as Civil War historians call it the OR, which, of course, you know, begs the question, how many historical collections actually have a nickname? Um, And um, and, and that collection is is uh just so essential so seminal to Civil War history not just academic history but the the way academic history gets translated gets um uh, uh, passed on in the form of movies and documentaries and and um, every other kind of uh popular retelling of the history of the civil war with all its profound meanings for american life both then and now and so um the the history of of the official records has never been uh written historians have just assumed that these are the official records of the war. And, you know, it's just historical truth between, um, again, it's not a book, it's 128 books, but within these covers lies the historical truth uh, of the Civil War. And as I show in the book, that is hardly the case. The records and the books that hold them are a reflection of the particular personalities, politics, and policies of archivists, of politicians, of military bureaucrats, of very specific people with very specific agendas, with very specific historical ideas that made this compilation over the course of a quarter century and have given it to us uh, in some ways doing us a great service by um, saving um, most of us the need to you know, go to the National Archives and look at manuscripts for every single order or telegram or uh, whatnot. But on the other hand, have done us a great disservice because it is their vision of what the Civil War was and what mattered in Civil War history that we have been stuck with since 1880 when the first volume of the series came out
1: any archivist listening to this (laughs) and certainly any archivist who's been anywhere near federal records is cringing right now at the thought of just uh primarily relying on a government-issued collection I I mean,
0: you know, when I talk to historians of the Civil War about this um, and, you know, many people in my field know that I've been working on this book or knew that I was working on it. And 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 when I start talking about it, they like they, they sort of close their eyes and say, oh, my God, how have I never thought about the fact that the OR is not just facts, but that it's actually an edited compilation. How yeah. have I ever asked myself who edited it? Why? Even the way, I mean, I know this sounds technical, but it's really meaningful. The way we cite the OR in our publications, we never use an editor. Well, like, you know, the war department, I mean, but who in the war department, right? right? Who was that person and what did they find important and what did they find unimportant? And one of the things that I do in the book is compare uh, a sample of raw records in the National Archives versus the published records that are in the volumes. And I show how some of the most interesting documents, the most meaningful documents for present day historians get left out of the book of the published of the published version, uh, because because a military bureaucrat in 1885 didn't think that was important.
1: Right. We'll get into this later. It just, there's a kind of meta thing happening. We're gonna talk about the intellectual landscape in terms of how people were understanding history and archives in which this was compiled. But a big part of your argument, or just what you write about, is the way that the OR kind of supported, moved along this interest in Civil War history. So we have these Civil War historians who are working in now a centuries-long tradition and this is sort of one of the foundations of this tradition, and you don't you don't necessarily see that you're working in something fairly rigid. i I, I find this a lot <laughs> with, with researchers.
0: I mean, I think that, you know, we there's something really um captivating about collections of primary sources because you're so impressed you're in awe of the richness of the documents, right? And you kind of don't stop to think about what it is that's not in the records and who made the decision to uh, collect these particular records. It's just very much not in our nature um, to think about the absences and silences. We just kind of delve right in um into the sources that are available to us
1: right and I think that there is to some degree just a lack of knowledge of what archival labor looks like so you don't necessarily know the questions to ask so on that note let's talk about the records let's let's just start with the records period before we talk about the OR um you talk about the the Civil War records machine So can you describe the apparatus? Can you talk about what records were created, why governments were collecting, what what were the motivations there? Okay.
0: So the Civil War was in some ways was in some ways the first bureaucratized war or at least one of the first bureaucratized wars. You know, it's always very dangerous to claim that anything is first. Um, But the the size of the armies, numbering a total of 3 million men combined, and the extent of the um, geographical spaces they were operating in uh, forced basically everything to be done on paper. Um, it, it, even the telegraph, which in some ways right, is, is uh, the first opportunity that humans have had to move beyond paper, uh, is actually um, completely based on papers because telegraph operators uh, uh, were ordered to save uh, copies of both ingoing and outgoing messages. So even that has left a substantial paper trail. And we are talking about millions of telegrams sent and received every year. Um, and so this is, uh, that is, paper really is um, at, at the crux of the of the Civil War fighting machine on, on both sides. And um, the U.S. military, when it enters the war, it's small, it's um, not really ready for anything that's going to happen. Uh, But it is very uh, bureaucratic and it does have a, at that point, decades long tradition of good um, uh, record keeping of of sort of a very orderly uh, process of uh, maintaining records and confederate uh, the confederate army because it is based um, at at least in the beginning largely on officers in the U.S. Army who secede uh, from the army as they secede from the union basically adopt uh, identical record keeping processes and so on both sides um The production of records is very similar. Of course, it's it's on a bigger scale in the United States um, and, and then in the Confederate States and more survives the war because so much was burnt. Um during uh, the last few days of the Confederacy, then uh, there was uh, there were huge losses of, of records on that side. Um, but still, you know, the, the archive that does survive is is large enough to be substantial and to offer us uh, some a pretty good picture of, of at least some aspects of, of the Civil War. And so anything that you can think of from, um, rosters, memoranda, uh, receipts, Uh, battle orders, a lot of correspondence, just a ton of correspondence. You know, they write each other all the time. Officers on all ranks just exchange letters um, all the time. There is a famous uh, quote, uh, well, famous in in my mind, um, from a lovely book by uh, the literary historian Stephen Cushman. in 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 which he, uh, he he quotes a letter by uh, Ulysses S. Grant to his wife Julia, where he finishes off a letter to her um, by saying, uh, "I have ten or twelve hours of writing ahead of me, and so I must close." And and this is a lot of what officers were doing both before the war and during the war, just documenting, reporting. Um, mm-hmm. Writing, answering letters, um, so these are really very much paper-based
1: armies. So there's a lot, and there was some. Um, uh, there were there were orders to keep and maintain these records as yes. the war was ongoing.
0: Yes. So the militaries have very strict rules about both producing records, keeping good documentation of military operations, and also keeping them. That here, things get a little dicier. Because a lot of the, the officers who actually served in the Civil War were not professionally trained. Right. The vast majority of the armies uh, eventually consisted of volunteers. And so these were officers who didn't really get officer training and especially definitely not officer training in um, in record keeping. And so they were pretty lax. And then records get lost and records get burnt and records are um, destroyed when a bandwagon just sort of falls into a river. And on any number of occasions, when commanders of military units were wounded in battle and the Civil War was the kind of war in which senior commanders, meaning the ones who left the, the largest paper trail were wounded and killed, Uh, You know, who knows what happened to their records? Um, Officers who move between commands, then, you know, they're in charge of one unit one day and then six months later, they're in a completely different place. They took their records with them or they, you know, left them at their tent uh, at at the tent for the the next guy coming in to replace them. But he didn't know where it was, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you could just imagine how in such a chaotic and geographically dispersed conflict, records get lost. So there's there are these twin realities that, that I focus my first chapter on, um, in, which is called An Archive Made and Unmade, because on the one hand, papers keep being produced every minute uh, of the war, and yet there are c- just constant
1: losses taking place uh, at the same time. And can you also talk about, if we're thinking about post-war, the Civil War archive, quote-unquote, how the Confederate records were and weren't integrated. They're ostensibly, you know, the, the Union wins, the Confederate records are now federal records. Are they actually under the control of the federal government?
0: So, you know, that's a really interesting story because Confederate records obviously are not. Uh, The Union soldiers uh, pick up and send to Washington basically anything that they can find, uh, mostly because they're looking for um, some kind of evidence uh, for crimes and acts of treason that the Confederate government had committed, uh, even beyond those which are well known, meaning seceding from the United States and bringing on a civil war. Um, And so there is this motivation uh, at at the very end of the war to try and find evidence for Confederate culpability in the assassination of Lincoln for various other uh, sort of crimes uh, against humanity to use a more modern term um, that Confederates uh, are uh, assumed to have committed. Um, Slavery of course, which is the greatest crime against humanity is not considered something you can put anyone on trial for, right? So it's not that that they're looking for, but they're collecting documents. Um, But then a lot gets left behind. I mean, clearly, you know, federal soldiers wandering across the post-war South can find what they can find, but Confederate officers just take their records home. And keep them at home and won't give them away, even though Confederate records were the property of the United States in the same way that Confederate factories, Confederate gunboats, right, Confederate anything was the property of the victorious party in the Civil War. Um, then that uh, that did not matter. The federal government was never able to confiscate or to take over uh, force by force of uh, Confederate records. And it's a real mystery in some ways as to why the federal government could not assert its authority over records that people who were rebels and were uh, acknowledged as so and recognized as so, uh, why when it came to paperwork, the federal government's approach was, well, you know, if I need these papers, I'm going to either beg that person pay that person, uh, send a, a, a Southerner over to that person's house and ask to copy them. Um, that's generally the approach, which I think is actually quite a, emblematic uh, of the ways in which the federal government dealt with uh, ex-Confederates in the post-war
1: generation. And we won't get too into this because we have bigger questions about American society to get into. But for any listeners, there is there are some very interesting asides in the book about savvy confederates selling their papers to the federal government for large sums uh which raised a lot of questions for me but Agreed. let's 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 go let's go a little broader um so clearly there's a very when we're talking about the civil war archive even just official federal records again any archivist who's been anywhere near government records is cringing. What is an official record? What is a federal record? Um so what, what even if we are thinking in those terms there's a complex array of papers there is a federal decision made to compile what will become the OR. What are the sort of archival and his, his just historical right his, the field of history is not Fully coalesced into an academic field at this point. Frankly, especially in the states, neither has archives. Um, a lot of our European peers are much further along in establishing and using national archives than we are. So, in in America, um, what are the frameworks in which the editors of the OR that you do uh, discuss? What are they working when?
0: So you know that's that's really interesting. Um... Because they aren't trained archivists and they don't think of themselves as archivists, and I don't think they're even that aware. Or I have not even seen. I have not seen signs in their correspondence that they are aware that in Europe there is an archival profession that at that point is a few decades old and is um, is, is is as you say much further along. Um, I think they're basically thinking uh, in two frameworks. One, they're thinking legally, meaning they're thinking about evidence as a form of truth. And in that way, their historical thinking um, follows very much the same logic. They think of their role as presenting all the possible evidence and allowing historians to judge for themselves and and this is really a moment uh when when history and law are actually quite um close as sort of in in conceptual terms and and so the fact that none of these, I mean, like you say, there are no professional historians at this point or professional archivists, but there are a lot of amateur historians and the staff that puts together the OR um, includes some amateur historians and probably the most important figure in the making of the OR, uh, Robert N. Scott, uh, is also a legal thinker. And so these ideas of truth evidence, fact, just laying it all out there and letting the student of history be the judge, um, that is a, a kind of mode of thinking that drives the process of uh, compiling the official records and that draws on both history and law. Now, very early on, um, as Robert and Scott uh, takes the reins uh, of of this project, which takes place in December, 1877, he sets certain criteria for which records should be included and which shouldn't. And it's all of these criteria are incredibly problematic and, and, and you should be cringing, and every archivist, and frankly, every historian too should be cringing because he defines them as official, important, and written during the war. Now, official, like you say, is a whole kettle of worms, right? I mean, what is official? How does one determine whether a record written at midnight when an officer is semi-drunk to his friend who's another officer in the same regiment, is that an official record or not, right? So that's one question. Uh, Written during the war seems straightforward. It's not, because the compilers of the OR accept records written years after the events which they purport to report on. So, for example, a battle in 1862 that gets reported in June 1865, meaning not only years after the actual event, but after The meaning and the implications of that event have been um, readily uh, identified. And of course, important. I mean, what is important for a historian in the 21st century versus what was important for a military bureaucrat in 1877? These are just two different mental worlds. And um, and and so, you know, Scott was following common sense and he was following his interest in history and his knowledge in law. And, you know, that's created a fine collection in some ways, but also a completely unusable collection in others.
1: And I think that is the core question. Um, This is this is a big question, but what's missing? and how how did the way it was created affect what's missing?
0: so i I think what's missing, um are huge chunks of social history which are available in military records, but are just not in the oR. And what do I mean by that? Of course, historians of of civil War society, and there are amazing histories uh, of of civil War society in all its shapes and forms, black, white, you know, people who are poorer, people who are richer, uh, you name it, and there's a book on it, and a good book. And yet, the the governmental publication does not include uh, vast quantities of correspondence about the relationship between the army and society, which reveal a great deal about Americans during the Civil War and about this really unique moment in which American society was mobilized uh, in some ways against itself, uh, in other ways in pursuit of a different America than uh, the one that existed before the war. Uh, It it really is the the sea change change in in US history. And it, it, it really does emanate from society because this is an army of citizen soldiers And it depends on the work of people on the home front to sustain it. And so the interface between the army and uh, society um, is incredibly meaningful. And yet it's completely absent from the OR because the compilers of the OR weren't interested in people who were writing the government and people who were coming to see government officials um, and people who were making suggestions um, in people who were uh, making requests. You know, that's just not what they cared about. They cared about active operations in the field and that's what you get from the or and i think in that sense there's a lot there and it does provide uh, a thorough picture of at least some um aspects of active operations but there was this whole world of um of of, of civilians interacting with the army that that's completely absent from the official records though it's Quickly a, a, a visible when you look at the raw records, the unedited uh, paper records still sitting at the National Archives. And then the other thing, which you know, this is a realization that came to me uh, one day, and from from the moment it it I, I had um, I had thought of it, then I could never think of it in any other way. What the OR does is make the Civil War seem more interesting than it actually was because it's a very fast paced, very condensed version of events. All the boring parts get edited out. But war is about routine and war is about boredom and war is about soldiers going back and forth and uh, doing guard duty here and guard duty there. There's this whole experience of military routine which the OR editors were not interested in, and yet it is absolutely elemental uh, to the actual reality of, of of the Civil War. So that gets edited out. Um, and then uh, the other thing that gets edited out, and this is these are not uh, my own insights, but insights of uh, archivists uh, who worked in um, uh, the the National Archives over the course of the twentieth century, is that. They estimate that about a third of Civil War battles never even made it into the official records because there was no documentation. So, for example, when you compare local newspapers from various, let's say, Western states, which were not at the center of Civil War fighting, you discover all sorts of events that just never made it into the the archive. And so the government archive is actually a fairly uh, limited repository of Civil War papers. And when you take that archive and then edit out of it so much, what you get is a very partial
1: view of what the Civil War was. So I want to ask you a question, and this is about your personal sort of professional and intellectual practice, (laughs) not at all prescriptive um but you know probably better than anyone the limits of the OR um I have to imagine it's still in some ways useful and you're still, and still referencing it. <laughs> it so how, how do you approach it you know its limitations how do you how do I mean, you kind of mitigate them
0: thank you for uh pointing that out in the first chapter of the book uh so the first chapter takes place during the war during wartime and um And I alluded to it earlier, it's it's basically an analysis of how wartime records get created and what are wartime records and what happens to them during the war, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, I use the OR because there is just great documentation there of records both disappearing and being discovered. I think what I know now is that what I see in the official records is in some ways anecdotal that... These records are there, they're available to me, they're searchable online. My God, it's just so seductive, right? You just you type in a keyword and you get a thousand results and you have a sense of, wow, you know, this is all I need. And, and what I have now is this very clear sense that these are very partial results that have made it to the OR by any uh, combination of circumstances that you can think of and that they don't necessarily uh, tell me the whole story. They tell me a very partial version of the story and I don't even know which part it is that I'm seeing. Uh, And and so I do use it. And and in some ways for my next project, which is actually, uh, and and I think this will uh, speak to your interest because you you were uh, cringing about this term just uh, earlier is is uh, the next, uh, my next project is, is going to be a study of a particular genre of civil war records, um, which are battle reports. And I'm going to try to show that these reports, which have always been considered as the factual basis for uh, historical uh, recounting of the war, were actually closer to personal narratives or literary writing. And my kind of my my point of departure for this project is is really what is official, and why is it that when we study, for example, the testimonies of the formerly enslaved, uh, which were given in the 1930s we make so many apologies and qualifications and these records are uh, very problematic in this way or that way. But when we use a battle report written by an officer during the civil war, you know this is a uh, truth if there ever was one. And so I'm going to try to take that apart. And for that, I'm going to be using the OR because I actually know that they put in the OR every battle report that they could find. Too many, in fact, um, and and so I know that it's usable for that, right? Um, but but I no longer think of it as anything but the work of archivists in the late nineteenth century. And if if I were to give advice to civil war scholars, I would say the OR is a good point of departure. You do some work with it, then you put it aside and you go to the National
1: Archives. Right. And that brings us to an interesting question, one that I ask myself constantly. I think it's part of being a responsible archivist is, who are you putting these records for and why? Who are you putting these records together for and why? And something that struck me about the OR is it's created or edited by former soldiers, former officers, and it's inter- it, it took more than 20 years to publish, so you can kind of see the use cases as volumes are coming out. A lot of who was interested in using it were these kind of civilian historians who were also former soldiers. So you have this group kind of talking to itself. For sure. Um, so that's maybe one example of people who were using the OR, you cite the archival scholar Eric Kettelar, whose name I hope I'm not butchering. But he talks about archival records being activated. Um, So who who was activating it? And who's activating it now?
0: Well, you know, I think the first people who activated uh, Civil War records were the bureaucrats in the late 19th century who were making the editorial decisions uh by selecting a document for publication you activate it right you give it a new life because the odds of the record that didn't get selected for publication being discovered by a historian i mean they exist and historians work in uh, brick and mortar archives and god knows that this is a huge field and every p- piece of paper more or less has been um read and and analyzed and thought about um but still once you select a record for publication, you're activating it. Uh, you're giving it a, a new lease of life, on life. Um, and so that's one way in which the records were, were activated. Um, of course, when the records went through the whole process of publication, when they were copied, when they were proofread, when they were sometimes given to outside parties uh, to be read and corrected if mistakes were found. These are also all sorts of ways in which records, which are supposed to be completely stable, right? And static are actually being activated because you're never sure what gets corrected, what is a spelling mistake that's not really a spelling mistake, but changes the meaning of the word. You know, how people are messing around with the documents and there's a lot of messing around, which I show in the book. Um, I hope uh, persuasively. Um, And so that's one, that's another form of activation. And then finally the users and the users indeed um, activated in many different ways. And the first users are first and foremost veterans uh, because many, if not most, if not the great majority of the first historians of the civil war uh, through the early 20th century were veterans. Who were writing uh, regimental histories? Who were writing histories of campaigns they took part of? They took part in. um, um, It it was very much uh, a a conversation between veterans about their own experience. And then, you know, as the 20th century wears on, new people um, come on the scene and new generations of historians, and women, and African-Americans, and they each find in the OR um, different content. And, and, the, and the OR is, you know, I I kind of, I, I make a big deal of, of about how partial and how anecdotal the OR is and, and how it does not tell you the whole story. That's true, but it does tell you very many stories. And and so I, I give in the book an example of a historian I, I really admire Thavolia Glymph um, at uh, Duke uh, and and Thavolia has done. Uh, just incredible work both with the OR armies and the more obscure publication, the sister publication that came out later, The Official Records of the Union and Confederate Navies, which honestly, most people don't read. And Thavolia has dug into that collection and has found really remarkable stories of of the downfall of slavery and of how enslaved people function in this chaotic uh, reality of, of wartime and shape it to their own needs um the and 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 so that's a whole different way of of activating the records and so i think you know there are forms of activation which take place in the archive and i think that's what ketlar mostly means right because ketlar is writing about archival records which stay in archives my story kind of at some point emerges out of the archive Because the main way in which the federal government archived Civil War records was not um, by creating sort of orderly, usable, accessible, open Civil War archive, but by editing and publishing a selection of records, it's archivists thought were important. Um, and and so there is kind of no way but to 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 leave the archive and 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 follow the OR as it kind of comes into uh, its own as a published compilation and see how people use it.
1: We have just a few more questions uh, to take a bit of a turn. How did the creation of the OR impact the broader social landscape? of post-war America, especially around this idea of sectional reconciliation.
0: Yeah. So um, at some point uh I think my stories of archival records as uh, an important element in um account settling and, and coming to terms with the results of the war and, and my story about archives as of archival records as the the uh the building blocks of historical knowledge come together. Um, And I show, I I hope convincingly, that archival work, that the editorial process of making the OR uh, played a a truly important role in the process of reconciling um, the ex-Confederates after the Civil War. And, and um, I have uh, been able to trace um, the relationships between uh, built between the War Department and ex-Confederate officers and politicians who were asked to give their papers in order to complete the OR and were, in exchange, offered uh, pretty um, considerable uh, privileges of using the archive for their own needs, uh, deciding which archival records they are willing to donate to the government, which archival records they are willing to have the government publish. Um, It's it's a story of, it's a story of the archive as a locus of sectional reconciliation, which was unintended when the government first reached out to ex-Confederates and ask them for their uh, Civil War records, it wasn't doing so because it wanted uh, to move on from the war and build uh, a unified nation. It did so because it was missing crucial records on the Confederate side and wanted to complete its archive and to publish as a, a whole, a compilation as it could. And since so many Confederates took records home, and because as we uh, mentioned earlier, the government was completely helpless and useless in coercing them into giving their papers uh, uh, according to law. So it it needed to create these mechanisms, these relationships that would eventually uh, make ex-Confederates give uh, the government their papers or copies of their papers. And then you know once they start talking all sorts of things start to happen and then the war department hires an ex confederate general because it needs someone you know on the inside who can do the work of reaching out to ex confederates and then it hires an ex confederate clerk to further help facilitate um the relationship with with ex confederates and you know from one thing to the other uh we find ourselves uh with jefferson davis as a really important partner in the compilation process of the official records and we find you know probably the most extreme um ex confederate jubal early um as a um as as a as a um really important agent in the making of the OR because Jubal Early doesn't just give papers. He is so obsessed with Confederate history that he has uh, basically a private archive the government wants access to. Uh, he, the, the government wants his help in uh, proofreading, in correcting errors, in figuring out times, dates, uh, telegraph codes. You know, he's he's basically freelancing um for the federal government. And and you know that is, fosters a very different kind of relationship between these people and the government that they had fought for, for long years.
1: We don't have a ton of time to get into it, but for any listeners who might be interested in community archives, historical societies, anything like that, there this chapter is very interesting regarding the relationship of the government to various historical societies that uh, emerge in the South following the Civil War, trying to sort of claim their own versions of Civil War history. So we don't have a ton of time, but you can just read the book if you want to find out more about that. You did uh, already start to answer the classic New Books Network closing question, um, so I will open it up if you want to say anything more about it, about the current project you're working on, about battle narratives, or if not.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to um, this to discuss this um, um in in as much detail as as I can at this very preliminary uh stage, but you know, I- I'm pretty confident. That officers who were writing battle reports uh, were not thinking about the truth, but were thinking about other things they were thinking about the possibilities that this report would end up in the paper, as many reports did they were drawing on uh, just forms of reporting that they had known from reading the newspaper from. just living in the world of 19th century realism, in which facts and reports on facts were becoming increasingly important. Um, I think literary historians often date realism uh, to the post-Civil War era, but facts and numbers and reports were increasingly important in uh, antebellum and, and wartime America as well. And so I think there's just a lot going on in the minds of these officers as they're sitting down to write reports. And I'd like to think of them as, as writers, as white, male, middle or upper middle class um, Americans who are telling their stories. Um, and, and stories which often have a... a a huge impact on their future reputations, on what the public thinks of them, on what historians will say about them. And all of that is is in, in some ways in the back of their minds. Um, I think that they are much more aware and conscious of their writing than
1: uh, historians have previously given them
0: credit for. That
1: sounds so interesting. And maybe you can come back in however many years and talk about it on the podcast.
0: Hopefully less than it took to uh, create this book. But
1: yeah, you know. thank you so much for taking the time. This was so uh, informative. And I hope anyone listening goes and reads this book, especially if you are working in archival or civil war histories in any capacity.
0: Thank you, Hala. That This was a really great conversation. Thank you for the wonderful questions and for reading the book uh, with such care.